Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Good Growth Podcast. We have a very special guest on today's episode. I have plenty of topics of conversation to cover, uh, so let's get right to it. I'm delighted to welcome former party leader, Member of Parliament for the Liberal Democrats, and Cabinet Minister, Sir Vince Cable. Thank you very much for joining me. Good morning. Delighted to join you. And how are you? Are you well? I'm very well. I'm one of these rather privileged people that I have my home in Twickenham and my wife has a little farm in the New Forest. So uh, I'm afraid lockdown has been a privilege, actually. We've been able to enjoy the wonders of the English countryside, some of the most beautiful parts of it. And, um, you know, I feel rather guilty and a bit sorry for the people who are penned into multi-storey flats and crowded apartments. but anyway, that's the way it goes. Yes, I've been able yeah. to do useful things. Absolutely. This, the theme of this series of the podcast uh, has largely been around innovation. Um, and that's a topic I'd, I'd like to, to start off with today um, as you come from uh, a strong economic and, and business background. Your role in the, in the cabinet uh, from 2010 to 15 was as the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills. And during that time, you supported innovation as a route out of the financial crisis that preceded that government, um, namely in the form of opening a series of innovation centres that were termed catapults. Can you tell us a little bit about the catapults and the decision to use them uh, or invest in them as a means of emerging from the financial crisis? Yes, I I think the innovation centres, the catapults, was one of the success stories of the coalition. Um, And, you know, the old adage that success has many authors and failure has none. Uh, Quite a lot of people would claim credit for launching the catapult network, but I perhaps inevitably tend to stress my own role in it. Basically, what happened when I came into government, that there had been a very good report by a man called Hermann Hauser, who was a um, venture capitalist in Cambridge, um, a German, very familiar with the German Fraunhofer model, and had written a report advocating the creation of some kind of Fraunhofer network in the UK. When I became Secretary of State, I think there were two things that propelled me towards his thinking. The first was on the first day in the office. uh, Somebody got through on my mobile. It was Will Hutton, who I knew a little bit. And he said, uh, you know, he tried to, as he does, rather press on me a whole set of ideas, which I should implement tomorrow. Um, But said one thing I should do above all was listen to the people who were arguing for German-style innovation centres as a way of propelling uh, innovation and growth. Uh, And the other thing which I became quickly aware of was that we had an early round of cuts in the departmental budget. And I realised that there was a very strange feature of the British budgeting system that research was protected. There was what's called a ring fence around academic research. Uh, but innovation um, was separate, uh, separately funded and unprotected uh, and came under uh, an organization called the Technology Strategy Board that seemed to be doing admirable work, uh, but was subject to severe cuts and was unprotected. So I determined to reverse that. 
um, no, not reverse it, to continue to protect science, but to give innovation more of a security financial status. Um, and on the back of that, I uh, encouraged the idea of, a, of, a, of innovation centers. They weren't called catapults at that point. And we started by pulling together the seven centers um, of um, advanced manufacturing research centered on the Sheffield, but there were very good centers in Teesside, Coventry, uh, the Materials Institution in Bristol, a forming center in Strathclyde University, Glasgow, and Professor Bhattacharya's outfit in Warwick. Um, and that was the basis of it. And then subsequently, I got money from the Treasury to provide core funding, not just for them, but for a whole set of new catapults, as they became. It started with cell therapy at um, Guy's in London. And then we had space applications at Harwell, uh, new renewables uh, center in um, Glasgow, in, in Strathclyde University, and the Narek Center in the Northeast. Um, and then some somewhat more fanciful, you might think, but certainly wide-ranging catapults, one to do with new transport systems that was based in Milton Keynes, uh, the future of cities, which was in London, a digital center in King's Cross. Um, and then I got into a bit of a battle with the science community because I thought too much was happening in London. And so um, put up a, a fight to demand that new centers should be located more widely around the country. And, and partly on the back of that, we got a um, energy uh, saving uh, innovation based in Birmingham, uh, Precision Medicine, uh, which was in Cheshire, the outskirts of Manchester, and eventually a, a unit concerned with semiconductors, which was in Cardiff. So we got a regional spread. But that was the concept, uh, and the original idea was that a third of the money comes from the government, core funding, uh, a third is commercial consultancy, and the other third was to come from collaborative ventures with universities, the European Union, and uh, other private sector interests. And were, were you able to observe any initial impacts from those innovation catapults? What, what were you able to see in the, in the time, at least, during government? Oh, I think I think the advanced manufacturing catapult had an immediate impact and was, you know, was really light. I mean, I went round them all, and there was real enthusiasm by local businesses. Um, they'd never had anything quite like this before. That you know, technical problems that they needed resolving were helped through the catapult network. Uh, the others were in, in a formative stage. It was very difficult to judge them. Uh, subsequent government inquiries, um, we, there was a big investigation into the catapults 2017, um, had a sort of mixed verdict that the advanced manufacturing catapults had been a great success. Some of the more focused uh, catapults like satellite applications were doing very well which probably accounts in part for this recent acquisition the government has made in, in the space industry. Um, but the, the, the somewhat vaguer um, uh, manifestos of, of, say, the cities, the future cities and transport systems 
and even digital uh, were not thought to be highly successful and that several of them have been amalgamated uh, to make them more efficient and they've been put on a somewhat different business model but they're still there as far as i'm aware that the network is expanding um, it is regarded overall as a considerable success and what do you think the government the today's government can learn from from this in, in terms of how they help uh, businesses move forward and protect the economy through what is going to be a, uh, inevitably a, a very tricky spell? Well, I, I suppose the, the message I'm giving to the present government is, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, there, there are lots of good things happened. Um, you, you know, it may have been in this case a coalition government, Lib Dem minister, but, you know, that's not about the reason for burying it. Um, and, and many of the ideas we had within the industrial strategy, of which the Catapult Network was one, have um, survived the test of time, uh, and they, they should build on it. And if Britain is going to be a success story, um, it needs to have more innovation to drive productivity. We've got a big model here. Um, it's two elements to it, really, government and the private sector working together and taking a long-term view. I mean, those are the, the basic ideas we took from the Germans. Uh, and uh, I would hope the government is wise enough to invest in this network. Moving on to the EU and leaving the EU, uh, as, as the country has done, and uh, the transition period is now uh, coming to an end. Very much been second focus this year because of the global pandemic, uh, but it has to be noted that this is still going on. The deadlines are fast approaching. As I said, we're transitioning to a new set of rules for businesses and for citizens from 2021 onwards. Is there a real prospect now of us exiting without a deal? And what do you see being the implications of a no-deal exit, in particular for businesses? Well, there certainly is a possibility because both sides are talking about it and uh, preparing the public for that eventuality. I've always taken the view that it was unlikely. Um, I always thought we would leave the European Union, and that was a bad thing. Um, and I always thought it would, would happen on the basis of a negotiated agreement. Uh, and I, that's still my view, uh, even though we've probably got a week or so before we'll know the final outcome. If, if, if it does happen that there is a no-deal exit, um, there will be several consequences which are different from having a deal, albeit a very thin one, which is currently under discussion, uh, there will be an immediate impact on those sectors of the economy where there are significant tariffs. Um, the car industry is one, uh, which is pretty vulnerable at the moment. Uh, and the other is um, bits of agriculture, um, dairy, beef, um, which will suffer terrible damage if there is a no-deal Brexit leading to the imposition of full tariffs. And the other consequence, I think, is that it will there will be a lot of acrimony and, you know, blaming each other. And that will then make it very difficult to return to the negotiating table and build up a, a deal sometime next year. Because even if we get a very thin deal, as seems likely, and there will be quite a lot of disruption and lots of cost, uh, it's then possible to build on it um, and to address some of the areas which are currently slipping through the cracks, like security. Um, and it would be possible to you know, in, integrate Britain 
backwards into the single market, probably in a slightly stealthy way, given the politics of the government. Uh, but that can't happen, I think, if, if there is a, a fractious break at the end of this year. And I guess talking of fractious relationships, I want to move on to talk about China, uh, because it's, I mean, China are a fascinating country to talk about. So, uh, and you've recently published a book on China and the need for the, the Western world to in, engage with them. Why, why do countries like the UK and the US need to engage with China? Well, as a preface, just let's say I'm not a China expert, um, and I had to deal extensively with China when I was um, president of the Board of Trade within the coalition. I've always been interested in it. I did quite a lot of um, appraisal work when I was in Shell um, 20, 30 years ago for their big investment projects in China. Um, now, wh wh why is it essential that we engage? Well, the first reason is simple reality. Uh, China is probably, depending on how you measure it, the biggest economy in the world. It's growing relative to the Western world. Uh, it will, I think, continue to happen. I mean, there are um, what are called China bears who think that they will hit the buffers, but I, I, they've been repeatedly confounded. So I think China will become almost certainly a bigger and bigger um, player within the world economy. And, you know, given that we're our interests in trade and investment, we have to engage with that. I think the second reason is that contrary to a lot of um, the kind of propaganda in, in, around in the West and the tone of a lot of Chinese comment, China is actually becoming a, an easier place to do business. Uh, uh, for some years, it's been an easier place for companies to operate than, say, India or Brazil, a more open economy, albeit, you know, protectionist in some areas, and given the sensitivities around their so-called Great Firewall. But in general, a more open economy, easier to invest in. Things like intellectual property rights, which were treated in a fairly cavalier way, are now better dealt with. Foreign companies are winning more cases. Uh, the World Bank um, considers uh, China to be uh, a more, an easier country to do business in than even countries like Italy and Europe. Um, so that's a second factor. And I think the third is what you might call public goods. I mean, there are, there are a lot of problems in the world that we need to cooperate with other countries to deal with. Climate change is one. The current development crisis based on debt in Africa um, the need to protect against future pandemics. I mean, we need cooperation to do that. Um, and we may not like the Chinese model and, you know, the, the rather undemocratic methods and suppressions of civil, civil liberties, but they are there and they have to be dealt with. And I think, to my mind, one of the most crucial developments in recent times, is largely ignored in the West, is that the democratic countries of Asia Japan and Korea, most notably, have just signed up to a big trade agreement with China called the RCEP. Uh, the assumption was, certainly in Britain, uh, that they, they would gather around some kind of anti-Chinese alliance, uh, both in trade and military matters, and gang up on China. There's absolutely no sign of that. You know, the big Asian countries recognize reality. They recognize that uh, China is number one. and They've got to deal with them. Uh, and they deal with them in, in a business-like way. And we've got to follow their example. 
What, what would then would be the, what do you think are the potential implications if we weren't to engage? I mean, there's a case, I guess, to separate Western countries and Western economies from China um, and almost say, well, we, we'll go about doing our business and whatever China does, China does. Yes, I, I, I mean, there is a little bit of that decoupling uh, approach. We're, we're certainly in the United States following Trump's trade policy, and you're getting a bit of that from a, a lobby group of uh, British conservative MPs, the China Research Group, uh, in Duncan Smith and others who want to detach ourselves from China. But, but the, the, there is a quite a powerful counter-tendency. I mean, I did argue in the book that the model we should be looking at is... Um, Chancellor Merkel in Germany, you know, she, she's been to China 15 times, I think, uh, mainly trade promotion, and the Germans are doing very well in China. Uh, but also, uh, you know, trying to engage with them on, on big international problems uh, and finding, as I found when I was a minister, that you can talk to them privately about um, human rights issues, or they have a different position on it. But if you're just haranguing them and, you know, finger-wagging, I mean, this just causes friction and doesn't achieve anything. So they are open to talking and to conversation. It's, it's just, as with everyone, there's yeah, ways I mean, to go about it. I mean, I was there five years ago. And things have changed. And G, the new president, is um, more authoritarian and intolerant figure than these predecessors seem to have been. But I, I found that if you could talk to party secretaries at provincial level of very powerful people um, and members of the Politburo, um, standing committees it's called, you could talk to them about, you know, I, I had some good conversations about trade union rights. What, why didn't they have them in China? And they would argue back. Um, and they're very bright people. I mean, that, this is not like the old Soviet Union run by, you know, very old and rigidly minded um, people. I mean, the, the, the Chinese elite are the best of their generation, extraordinarily smart people, and um, they're perfectly capable of holding their own in debate. Do, do you think the election of Joe Biden in the US um, or pending election, um, offers optimism that the Western world can now successfully cooperate with China a bit more than perhaps in the previous? Uh, well, I, I, it will certainly be more polite. Um, and, you know, we, we'll have less of the aggrandisement that you got from Trump and the, the tweets and um, insults flying backwards and forwards. It, it will be traditional diplomatic um, ways of exchange, and that is an improvement. But I, I don't think it necessarily changes anything uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is that Biden's instincts are very much to promote liberal democracy, um, you know, good for him in, in values terms, but the Chinese clearly don't buy that and they think they've got a better model. Um, uh, and if, if Biden tries to do uh, what Trump signally failed to do, and that's create an alliance of like-minded countries with the Europeans, with India, um, to come in behind Taiwan so, to try to confront China, that could actually make things more difficult. Um, and on the Chinese side, I, I suspect that they may uh, take the view that, that you know, Biden is um, a more civilized communicator. Uh, but probably of short duration. I mean, the Chinese think in very long term. 
and they they probably assume that in four years time we're going to get another trump type republican um they're going to be back where they have been so why should they take biden all that seriously uh, i fear that may well happen um and i'm although i i think biden is you know great for restoring some faith in in western democracy i suspect he's influence will be more limited and that the improvement in Chinese relations will not happen. So thank you. Uh, so your new book, uh, new book, China, Engage, Avoid the New Cold War, uh, it's available on Amazon now, paperback, uh, copies, hard copies, uh, and available to download onto your Kindle or other uh, devices. Um, looking ahead then, uh, you have another book to be published next year, early next year, um, titled Money and Power. And that uh, appears so as though it look at the relationship between economics uh, and politics. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? And it seems to be focusing particularly on uh, prominent world leaders. Yeah, it's, it's a much more serious book than the China piece. I mean, I wrote the China piece in a great hurry about three months. thought it was very topical. I pulled together uh, what I knew. Um, but money and power has been in gestation for several years. And I, I, I guess it's a work of economic history or economic and political history. I mean, essentially what I've tried to do is to look at all the major political figures over the last two centuries who've changed the way we think about economic matters. I mean, I think what has, I've often found frustrating is that when you talk about economics, it's all about the economists. It's about Keynes and Milton Friedman and people like this. Um, but actually, as somebody who's been an economist and a politician, I know that what matters ultimately are the politicians because they're the people who implement the policy when you've got to understand where they come from and what their constraints are. So I, I looked at um, economic history from the standpoint of the politicians I started with uh, Alexander Hamilton in America, who laid the foundations really for modern America over 200 years ago. Uh, I went on to Peel uh, in the UK as a politician, a you know, very opportunistic politician. He wasn't an economic thinker at all, but who made one of the biggest transformations, which was converting Britain into a free trading country. And then at Bismarck, who, again, wasn't interested in economics, but did some of the most profound changes in European economic policy. Uh, the Zollverein, which was the forerunner of the European Union, um, promoted protected industrialization in Germany and launched the first welfare state. Uh, and then I moved on to Lenin, again, not a, an obvious economist, but his... Um, state socialist state um, state capitalism which was his new economic policy was the template for what eventually became the big reforms in china and elsewhere um, then i dealt with roosevelt and then moved on to the post-war era key figures like Erhard, the um, author of the german economic miracle um onto mrs thatcher uh, deng xiaoping uh, Lee Kuan Yew, um, General Park, who presided over the Korean um, breakthrough. Uh, and indeed, my modern um, figures are predominantly Asian, because in a way that reflects the reality of the modern world. And I finished up with um, Abenomics, uh, after Shinto Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, who 
has actually been transformational. I think we've noticed the way that Japan has been turned around in the last few years. Uh, and, and, and slightly cheekily, I did Trump at the end. Not that he's a great figure in any way, but Trumponomics, protectionism, economic nationalism, maybe we may not like it, but he has um, put it on the map and it maybe as a permanent feature. So it sounds like there's a real variety of different uh, mm. economic changes and policies that uh, these, these leaders have, uh, I guess, pioneered in some ways. Yes, I, I'm not concerned with goodies and baddies. I mean, the, you know, <laughs> I'm not making value judgments. I'm, I'm basically saying, you know, these are highly influential people who changed the way the world worked, and we should remember them and understand what they did. Well, it's been brilliant talking to you about various different topics here, and, and uh, but I'd like to talk a little, a little, finish by talking a little bit about yourself. You stepped down from Parliament just before the last general election. Where does your time and focus lie now? You talked about the book, so it sounds like you're incredibly busy. Um, what, what, what other things are, are going on at the moment? Well, apart from, you know, just enjoying life more and spending more time with Rachel, my wife, and enjoying the countryside and doing lots of cycling and walking, um, I'm writing mainly. I have a weekly column in The Independent. Uh, I'm working on these books, um, quite apart from the ones we've described. Um, I'm doing a, what I call the decade of disillusion, the story of the last decades seen uh, in Britain. Um, what I've done is I've started at the beginning of the coalition 2010 and put together my own source material. I've got quite an impressive collection of press cuttings uh, together with Rachel's diaries uh, and basically telling the story of that period, which I think will be of some interest, to, at least within my party, um, how we got where we were. Um, I, I've got to roughly halfway point in the coalition, the Olympics, um, and then I will uh, probably release a series of volumes. Um, it's not it's not intended for mass circulation, but um, as a sort of niche um, product, a bit of modern history, I think it will interest some people. Certainly does sound interesting. So Vince, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. That um, just about does it in terms of time. But thank you. Um, could talk to you for a lot longer if I, if I could. So, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.